Here's the thing. If the groove is bad, and man, we need the doctor to come in. <laughs> <laughs> Javier, are you free? The doctor's on his way. He's coming to, 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 to heal us. <laughs> yeah. To heal the groove. <laughs> Let the healing begin, baby. <laughs> Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.com. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My name is Clayton Craddock, and my guest today actually taught Chano Pozo how to play. <laughs> Mongo Santa Maria looked at him and said, how do I do that? <laughs> Alex Acuna said, you know what, man, I can't, I don't think I'll ever be able to play as good as Javier Diaz. Ladies and gentlemen, Javier Diaz. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Clayton. Did I call you a uh, Dr. Diaz? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but thank you for being a part of my podcast. Nice to see you again after almost 12 months, man. Hmm. How many lockdowns was that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The 17th lockdown. Uh, but we're, yeah. all, we're, we're free now. You are working. I've known you, I think, since 2017 when we first did the workshop of Ain't Too Proud. Was that Actually, we go, we go further back. We, we met briefly while... You and I were both subs at Motown, the musical. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. I remember you were subbing for Buddy and yes. I was subbing for Roger, Squitero, and who else? Uh, Gary Seligson. That's correct. Wow. Yeah. Fun times. Yeah. I love that show, man. That was so much fun to play. That was a great show. That was a great show. You're from Cuba? Yes, I was born in Cuba, and then uh, when I was uh, young, my, my family moved from Cuba to Venezuela in South America, and I spent pretty much my high school in Venezuela, and then uh, when I was in Venezuela, I was able to, you know, that's when I decided to, like, okay, I'm going to get serious about music. Uh, my father was a songwriter. And uh, he had he had been recognized quite a bit in Cuba as a songwriter. Uh, he didn't make a living as such, but but he was he was like a heavy hitter of Cuban music. And so there was always music in my house. Uh, and then once we moved to Venezuela, you know, you know how it is. My mom said, you know, you got to get out of the house. So what are you going to do? I'm like, OK, I'll take some music lessons. And I, I was lucky that in the town where we lived, there was a music school that was part of El Sistema, which is like a youth orchestra program that they developed in Venezuela for many years now. And I was able to attend music lessons there. And then, you know, I started playing percussion and learning a little bit about classical music. And at the same time, it was during the salsa craze and merengue craze of the 80s. And I was just picking up that stuff from like peers and like older uh, students that were already playing in bands and and that's how I kind of developed like a parallel life also as a hand drummer even though I was playing quote-unquote more classical stuff as well. Was there somebody yeah. that introduced you to being a percussionist? No, not one single person but uh, well look my dad was I mean being a Cuban songwriter and percussion especially hand drums and Afro-Cuban percussion being so predominant in Cuba. He was, he was quick to tell me, hey, that doesn't go like that. No, no, watch out, look out. Oh, no, you're falling off the beat. You know what I mean? Like that, when I was a kid, you know, once a kid, you know, we're playing some clavis or something. But then when we got to Venezuela that I got a little more serious and I, I was hanging out with different drummers from the area that were playing in... Uh, dance bands and sometimes I would because I was learning how to read music at the music school I would trade with them I said okay I'll teach you how to read music how to read charts 
if you take me along to your gig or you let me watch this rehearsal or like you show me how to play this thing on the congas or whatever. And right around that time, I got my first gig as a hand drummer. Uh, I mean, I must have been like, I don't know, 14, maybe 13. And that, believe it or not, it was playing bongos, accompanying a choir. And the, the, the entire repertoire of this choir was boleros. They just sang boleros. So it's like a you know four-bar harmony choir singing boleros and doing concerts and stuff. And they were, you know, some of them were related to this youth orchestra program. And then they like, they hire me to like, you know, play bongos with them. I mean, hire me, quote unquote, you know, uh, because you know, I, I just wanted the experience. I just wanted to play. And that's how I started playing more and more hand drums. And from there, I learned more congas. And being Cuban, I was like, okay, I got to learn this stuff because, you know, these instruments are so predominant in Cuba. So I was learning classical percussion. And at the same time, I was kind of like going through the street to learn, pick up these hand drums and pick up all this other stuff that I was doing. So by, by the time I moved to the United States after high school, I could play the hand drums to a, you know, quite advanced level. And I could also play classical percussion. So it was, I also played drums. I was playing bands and stuff. So it, it was all like happening all at the same time. Tell me what the differences or are there differences between Venezuelan music and Cuban music? That's a great question. You know, there are some parallels. There are some things that are similar because of similar heritage that both Venezuela and Cuba have. Like, you know, both had a native population, people that lived there, you know, hundreds of years ago. And in the case of Venezuela, there's still quite a lot of indigenous people from Venezuela. In the case of Cuba, indigenous people from Cuba have either mixed in with the general population or, you know, they, they're, they're just not as predominant as they were in Venezuela, at least while I was there. But there was also a lot of African influence uh, in both countries. Uh, and there was, of course, a lot of European, you know, particularly Spanish influence on both countries. So given the history of both being, you know, in, in that part of the world, in the Caribbean and all that stuff. So th those are the parallels. I mean, there's groove, both both countries have a lot of groove both countries have a lot of dancing a lot of you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of rhythm and and of course the popular music is sung in spanish but in venezuela uh even though they could play cuban music quite well because i mean i call it cuban music because when we say salsa the origins of it the, the ancestry of it could be traced back a lot of it to Cuba and Puerto Rico as well. And from there, it just kind of expanded to different different countries and gained its own kind of flavor in the individual places. So in Venezuela, the brand of salsa that they were playing was very much based on like, uh, I want to say like New York style salsa from the 70s. So the bands that I saw play were doing that combined with a little bit more like traditional kind of dance band music that play merengues and a little bit, you know, different kind of music. So uh, in Cuba, there is a lot of Afro-Cuban music that is just there for you to, to absorb and to learn if, you, if you're interested. And even if you're not interested, it's still going still gonna to get in somehow. So, you know, the whole idea of like clave and the concepts, the rhythmic concepts and all of that, that's just very, very, very predominant in Cuban music, uh, especially in dance music. Uh, it is also predominant in Venezuela, but they also have their own indigenous things that they have developed over the years, you know, like all kinds of styles like joropo, which uses maracas and harp and an instrument called the cuatro. That's huge, you know, like music from the plains. They also have music from the coast that is very influenced uh, by African traditions. So they have very, very interesting drumming traditions that are unique to Venezuela. Uh, and they overlap to a certain extent with some of the traditions, the drumming traditions that 
we have in Cuba, but they're different. They have different flavors. So uh, I would say it's like, you know, when you say, uh, I don't know, New Orleans jazz versus like South Carolina jazz. It's like, okay, it's, it's, it's all jazz, but it has its own individual identity and flavor. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and I'm talking about early, early on in jazz, you know, like when, when people were like, I don't know, the 1920s or so. Uh, New Orleans had this thing and then South Carolina had this thing and then the Chicago blues was different from the whatever, Delta blue or, you know, all these things. Still the blues, but different flavor. Is the music of Venezuela different from Colombia and Ecuador or Brazil? I would say so. Very different. All of these countries that you mentioned, they have their own, because... I mean, I'm not a historian, I'm not a music historian, but I, I have studied a lot of, of the evolution of music in, in the Americas. And one thing I can tell you is that really old Spanish music, right? Like I'm talking about like these dances and songs from like the Renaissance and the early Baroque. They acquire very individual flavors in the different areas of Latin America. And the same thing for Brazil, even though in Brazil it was a Portuguese that kind of dominated, you know, the, 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 the colonizers or the Portuguese or the dominant culture there. But everywhere has like, you know, it could be, okay, the Fandango, right, from one area of Spain, but it was played differently 50 years later in different towns of South America, even though they were all provinces of colonial Spain or colonial Portugal, whatever. So these individual flavors mixed in with other cultures, such as African traditions, such as indigenous traditions, and maybe even other European traditions like French or German or whatever. And then they acquire a particular flavor. So in Colombia, you know, they have the cumbia, which is a very, you know, you hear like, that's like that, that's like that beat, you know, that, that you hear in a lot of Colombian music. And from there, they have exported it to, let's say, Mexico, where they have their own cumbia now that has its own flavor. Uh, and then in, 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 in Venezuela, they have the joropo, which is like, you know, it's in six, eight, or it's in three, four, really. And then a similar kind of music uh, called zapateo exists in Cuba. But it doesn't have the maracas, for example. It doesn't have the It has, uh, and instead of the cuatro, which is like a really old Spanish like thing, it may have like a guitar or something else, you know. So still played in three and in four and a similar kind of dance where you're like moving your feet and stuff like that. But, but it doesn't sound the same. And they, it may have slightly different progressions. And, you know, so yeah, the music from Venezuela is similar to the music from Colombia, but it's, it has its own distinct flavor. And the same thing goes for Cuba. I would say that the music from Cuba, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm making a mistake by saying anything that is definitive, but I, I would say that the music from Cuba is more of its own thing versus like Venezuela and Colombia music are a little bit closer to one another in terms of flavor. But they're still very different. Yeah. When you were in high school, you were studying classical along with doing the dance band thing. Were your intentions of being a classical musician? <laughs> you know, w you know, when I was a teenager, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I mean, I was just I really like all music. So um, even though we were studying classical music. I was playing with like a rock band. I was playing drums. And then I was hanging out with the salseros and the merengueros trying to pick up all that as well and then trying to get better on, on the bongos and on the congas. So for me, I just saw everything as one thing. And I had no idea where I was going to end up. I didn't know. I wasn't thinking of classical music as necessarily as like this thing that I'm going to do, but I was thinking as... It's just another, it's just music. It's just, it's giving me certain rudiments and certain techniques that are going to allow me to be, to, to, to learn whatever I want to learn, you know? Uh, and at the time, I mean, I wasn't so 
I wasn't understanding so much about the origins of classical music. I didn't realize, you know, that even though it was obvious that classical music was so European and it was so white and it was so, you know, exclusive of other ethnic traditions in a way. Uh, but the way it was taught in El Sistema in Venezuela, it was, it was very inviting and it was very, uh, very fun, very inclusive of every strata of society and any ethnic group. And, you know, we're talking about Venezuela. I mean, it's like there's people that look in every different way, you know? So, you know, we were all there. We were just studying, you know, how to read music, how to, what a chord was, whatever, how to play a paradiddle. We weren't thinking of like, okay, we're going to be classical musicians and go. Eventually, I mean, by the time I was 18, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty serious about this, you know. Maybe I can keep going with it. And that's what brought me to the United States. So you get to the United States and you move to New York City or you move to California? I moved to California. I moved to L.A. because my grandmother lived in L.A. at the time. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to go hang out with grandma for like a year, learn English, come back to Venezuela. But that never quite materialized like that. Because I got to L.A. and I, I got the opportunity to audition for a scholarship at Santa Monica College. So they had this program called the Mentor Program. And while I was studying English, you know, in night school and working at McDonald's, I was like, okay, what, how, can I, how can I advance this music thing, you know? So I went to Santa Monica College. It was a community college. And they said, you can join the orchestra here. Just pay 25 bucks, join the orchestra. So I'm like, okay. So I joined the orchestra, the community orchestra, and started playing whatever, you know, timpani and whatnot. And I found out that they had a scholarship there that if you audition, you could, and you won, you could study for two years with, or one and a half years with a teacher of your choice. So I was like, oh, this is great. So I, I think I played some snare drum or I don't know, some congas. I don't even know what I played. I can't remember. And and at the time, I mean, I was already gigging. I was playing, you know, some church gigs. I remember auditioning for a blues band that I, I didn't even get hired for because I was trying to... I got this tape that Dave Weckl made. And I thought the licks he was playing were super cool. I was only 18. So I showed up to this audition with the blues band, <laughs> this guy with the guitar and the bass, and some guy with the harmonica. And then I started busting out some crazy, like, kick drum chops and you know they were looking at me i thought they were digging what i was doing <laughs> they never called me back <laughs> so anyway <laughs> stuff i was doing you know and then i auditioned for the scholarship and then i got it and i was able to study with this guy uh his name was eric forrester he was a classical percussion teacher and he recruited me to go to usc and that was it. I mean, I got a scholarship to go to USC. I was there for three years. And then I went to Juilliard for my master's on another scholarship. Now, what made you decide to go to Juilliard? I often ask myself that question, like, because I was happy. I mean, at the end of my undergrad, I was playing. I was learning a lot of bata drumming, which is an Afro-Cuban religious drumming uh, with this uh, uh, Afro-Cuban musicians that lived in LA. One of them is my Bata teacher, Lazaro Galarraga, who was a founding member of the National Folkloric Group of Cuba, who was one of one of my mentors. And another drummer named Angel Figueroa from, from Puerto Rico, who, who's an incredible Latin percussionist. So I was hanging out with these guys. I was playing gigs. I was playing like C-level recording sessions, you know, like some independent film that it only pays like 250 bucks. You, you know, you brought in your own gear and played some grooves and then you got your 250 bucks cash. You went to the next thing, maybe played at a club or whatever. So I was doing that and I was starting to bit by bit sub with bigger groups like the LA Philharmonic. They started like calling me peripherally to, you know, play like some auxiliary percussion and stuff like that. And, uh, 
that was a percussionist named Raynor Carroll, who was the principal percussion of the, of the LA Phil at the time. And another guy named Mitch Peters, who was a timpanist. And uh, they knew me from the scene and I had studied a little bit with Raynor and they're like, okay, you know, just come here and play whatever, the triangle or something. I mean, I didn't play with them often at all. I played with them a few times. And, but I was already getting into that scene and I was pretty happy. I was driving my little 1988 Toyota Tercel around LA and I thought that was going to be my life. And my teacher at the time said, you should audition for grad school. This gentleman, Eric Forrester, I'm like, okay, I'll audition for whatever, you know. So I came back east, I auditioned, and uh, I auditioned for several schools, and then Julia ended up giving me a full scholarship. So I was like, okay, I got a full scholarship to go to Juilliard or driving my Toyota Tercel around town and do my gigs here. I almost went for the Toyota Tercel. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think I called a friend, and somebody said, no, man, go to Juilliard. So, so I, I, that's what I did. I came to Juilliard and then I stayed in New York after, after school. All right. Did you drive your Toyota to sell across the country? No, I, I think that car is still running in LA. I, I bought it for <laughs> a thousand bucks from my cousin. And I think I sold it for $700 to some other person. And it was running great when I sold it. So it's a great car. What can I tell you? Mm. So- <laughs> Did you have a car when you moved to New York? No. <laughs> and when I first got here, I was like, okay, I don't like New York. I'm ready to go back. It's gloomy. <laughs> when I opened the door, it smells like fried plantains in my big building. I, I love fried plantains, but it was like 24-7. Like, you know, everybody was cooking at random hours. So it was making me hungry all the time. I was like... It's dark. It's a four-floor, a four-story walk-up building. Going oh. to the grocery store is killing me. So I didn't want to go. I didn't want to be here, you know. But you know how New York is. It has its ways of, of just enticing you and and keeping you, and you can't quit it. No matter <laughs> how you, you can't quit it. You can't leave me. <laughs> <laughs> So you were at Juilliard. Did you did you look down the street and like, wow, it's Broadway shows. Let me let me try to get a job on a Broadway show. Or were you like, man, right across the street is a New York Philharmonic, and that's what I want to do. Well, well now the- that's a great question. You know, they built, they did this remodeling at Juilliard like years after I had left, and they have this really like artistic thing that looks like the the bow of a of a ship. But I always said, you know, that almost looks like a ramp where, like, they could put percussionists and slingshot them and, <laughs> and they'll land right about 46, 44th Street of the show, you know? <laughs> I know what you're talking about. It's like they put grass on there. Yeah, the right, grass and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, That's you funny. know, when I was at Juilliard, I had no idea what a Broadway show was. I, I saw a poster for Le Mis and I had no concept. I had I never seen one. I had played on some shows. Like I was briefly on a tour of Once on This Island that left from Santa Monica College, and it was like I did like a little college circuit thing, and eventually ended up playing in at the Kennedy Center. Uh, and I had played a bunch of college shows, you know, while I was at USC and while I was at Santa Monica College as both a drummer and as a percussionist. And I, I thought it was just fun. They were just gigs. I was like, hey, you know, this is a gig, just like the church gig was, or like, you know, playing with the, you know, a band or whatever. I wasn't even like thinking, okay, this is going to be a career path. I was just like, let's just play as much music as possible. And, but that, that was very valuable to me because when I first graduated from Juilliard, I remember clearly I had $300 in the bank. That was my, that's all I had. I didn't know my snare drum. I didn't like, I didn't know how I was going to continue. Like, because, you know, I, I was here, you know, on my own. I mean, it's not like I got help from my parents or anything. I was just like, 
from one scholarship to another scholarship, like, you know, like Tarzan in the jungle from one <laughs> the other. And, and it was just like, I don't know how I'm going to make it work. I was getting ready to go back to LA and, 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 and you know, Toyota Tercel was parked at my uncle's house. I was like, I'm still there, you know, but something happened. I was at a gig. Uh, uh, there's, there's a, a friend of mine, a gentleman who's been very, very, very helpful throughout my time in, in New York. His name is Jonathan Haas, who is a contractor and percussionist in the classical world and, uh, and, a, and an educator. And I met him at a summer program uh, in Aspen before I moved to New York. And he said to me, when you move to New York, call me up. You know, I'll, you know I want to see what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I called him up and uh, he said, okay, get your union card. And I got my union card. I was still in school. And he started calling me for some smaller gigs here and there when some of the more established percussionists couldn't make it. So slowly I was trying to break in into the classical scene, the freelance classical scene, but still no idea about Broadway. And then in one of those classical gigs, there was a gentleman named Michael Hinton, a good friend of mine, who at the time was doing a show and he saw me practicing congas on the timpani stool during the break. So I was playing second timpani to some symphony or whatever. And then on the break, you know, I was just working on some groove on the, on, on the stool quietly. And he's like, well, that's weird. So he came, you know, he approached me and he said, okay, I have two questions for you. The question number one is, would you give me conga lessons? And Number two, would you like to sub on my show? It, it, it's only timpani, and you're playing timpani, so you could do it. I was like, oh, my God, yes, absolutely. When do I have to play? Well, it's next week. I'm like, oh, damn. Okay, so I locked myself in a room for an entire week, uh, probably 16 hours a day. I learned his show. I played the show a few times, and that was the, my, the beginning of my Broadway journey which is an ongoing what show was that that was a revival of man of la mancha uh in 2000 or something like that 2001 maybe uh really a fun show a classic classic book you know a lot of timpani uh so it was fully classical that was like a totally classical gig and very difficult I remember being so nervous the first time I saw like I was like, man, I'm as nervous as when I'm taking an audition for a symphony orchestra or whatever, or more nervous. And I remember the music coming at me fast. Like, like when you're standing, when you're driving in the rain and you stick your head out, I never do that, but I imagine <laughs> that feels. And it was coming at me fast and furious and, uh, it was, it was good. I mean, I made it. I made the cut and get fired. But I was like, okay, Broadway is no joke. And subbing on Broadway is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And every time I do it, boy, is it uh, puts you in shape. It just makes you be extra diligent about everything. A symphony orchestra is different than playing in a Broadway orchestra. What are the major differences? Okay, well, I'm going to start with the major similarities first, uh, because that's going to be revealing as far as the differences. You know, playing percussion has two components, basically. One is placement of one note. I call it the one note placement, which is, okay, I got a note with the heart. Ding, you play that. Or I got this cymbal crash with the whole band. You play, the, you know, that's like, you know, whatever, or a big roll comes in. That's like an event, you know, so you, you got to time it. And, and so that happens a lot on Broadway and that happens a lot in the orchestra. So that's very similar. Uh, however, on Broadway, there tends to be a lot more groove, a, a lot more music. I should say music that incorporates more groove. Like you might have like umpa, umpa, umpa more on Broadway or you may have like a salsa beat or you may have like an R&B or whatever, you know. If it's an old-fashioned show, it might be more swing or something. So your placement of things is within 
that parameter of groove more so than in an orchestra in which you are placing it in this time zone of like the brass and the low strings more or less, but you're really far away from the flutes and, but you don't want to be too far away. So everything in an orchestra tends to be a little bit more relative. Like it's together, but not necessarily like razor sharp together. It's just in the ballpark kind of. And in, in a pit, everything is a little bit more immediate. So when a conductor it goes like that in a pit, you play with this ding moment. You don't go ding because you'll be late. But in an orchestra, they go like, bum, which is kind of weird, but that's what they do. So you get used to playing like that in an orchestra. I, I noticed that when I, the closest thing to an orchestra feel that I did on Broadway was at Cats. And right. it's not really an orchestra, but there's a lot of orchestral instruments in that show. I was subbing for Bill Lanham there at the last go around when it came back a couple of years ago. And that whole idea of watching the conductor and how the conductor would come down and then come up and then people would start on the upbeat. And I'm like, why is everybody so far behind? But everyone wound up playing together. And I, I just didn't understand it. So I had to like get away from my instincts and just follow everyone else. Yeah. How do you, um, how does an orchestra know where that, that together, I guess, downbeat is when it's on the upbeat? (laughs) A great question. And not only that, but every orchestra plays differently. Like every now and then I get called to sub or play extra at the Met. They have another time zone from, let's say, the New York Philharmonic or the American Symphony or the New York Pops. I play a lot with New York Pops, one of the percussionists. And New York Pops, being an orchestra that plays more beat-oriented stuff, they play a little bit more like Broadway, more like right on, you know? But then these other more classical groups... There is something else going on. Part of what's happening is the conductors are ahead. That's one thing. And the reason why conductor or orchestra conductors conduct ahead of the beat is because the orchestras are so big that if they want everything to be exactly with their, their downbeat, everything starts sounding late. So it's a weird thing. The conductor is ahead, so you, you feel like you're playing catch up with the conductor but it's sounding in time because the conductor herself is ahead. So it's kind of like a weird thing. That, yeah, so that, it all stems from the orchestra being so big and it takes time for a violin to go, you know, if you have like 50 violins, then it takes a long time for them to just start a note. It's not immediate. Like the smaller the group, the more immediate the sound. But the bigger the groove, the more it's like, it's like, you know, it's like, like a, and that's why conductors jump ahead so that the thing starts a little after them. And it feels to us in the back because we're now you add the distance factor because in the back of the orchestra, time is at a different rate than in the front. Like when they go ding, that gets to the audience faster than when I go ding in the triangle and back. So they are ahead of the conductor and I have to be a little bit ahead of what I think I am supposed to be so that I am with them. It's all like very complicated. It's like that picture of the lady with the math triangles and stuff. And yeah, she's yes. <laughs> that, that's exactly. I don't really know. I've been playing in orchestras like forever. And I still don't know. It's kind of like a little bit of like a natural thing. You just go ahead and do it and hope for the best. But I, I'll tell you that what Rainer Carroll told me once about orchestral playing. If the music is slow, play behind the beat. Don't play right where you see it because everything is going to come a little later than you think. And if the music is fast, play a little bit ahead of the beat because you will be sounding behind where they are. All right, question. I've never 
you know, the last time I played in like uh, orchestra playing just snare drum was in like high school or uh, high school. But uh, so if you're playing snare drum, there's a bass drum player, there's timpanist and there's other percussionists around you. Are there times where you all playing together like, you know, we would at a show? And yes. So you is it is it you know, I remember hearing. People talk about the first trumpet player and how they control the horn section by starting out or the way that they hold their horn or the way they play. Is there someone that I guess is the first percussionist or chair that kind yeah. of d- dictates how that goes? Well, it's, sometimes it, the writing itself dictates it. Say that you're playing a piece that has snare drum, bass drum, and cymbals, and timpani. The timpani is going to be orchestrated with the low notes of like the tuba and the trombones and that stuff. So the timpanist is going to have to connect with that side of the orchestra. The bass drummer is going to have to connect with the timpani and not cover the ba- the timpani, even though if your part says really loud, play a little bit less than the timpani because you want to hear the pitch that the timpani has more than the noise of the bass drum. Your bass drum is going to support the timpani. Let's say the timpani is going boom, 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 and then the bass drum is going boom, boom, boom. You don't want to go boom, boom, boom. You want to go like, you know, a little bit under the timpani, just there to be noticed, but not too loud. So time-wise, I'm going to be connecting with the timpani because the timpani is connecting with the trumpets and the low brass. So if the snare drum has ram, ta-da-dum, ta-da-dum, ta-da-da-da-da-da-dum, hopefully the brass is listening to the snare drum, but that's not guaranteed. So sometimes the snare drum may have to if the trumpet has pop, 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 you know, and they are a little bit behind and the snare drummer is right on perfectly, perfectly, that's going to make the snare drummer sound wrong. So you may have to go instead of pop, 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 just a little bit more chill, you know. And then, of course, that's going to affect the bass drummer and the cymbal who are playing together like this march. So it's it's all very relative. It's more like you are like swimming and you want everything to be at the same distance from you at all times. Uh, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's very strange thing. And that's one of the things when like really young players win jobs, they are really great players and they, they can play technically really well, but they might not have necessarily like this incredible experience about how do you negotiate all of those time feels, you know, and still make it sound like it's right on time. For example, if you're playing Ravel's Bolero on the snare drum, you would think the orchestra is listening to the snare drummer. And as a matter of fact, if you ask anyone in the orchestra, they'll tell you, we're listening to the snare drummer for the beat because the snare drum is relentless playing the same beat on that piece. And, but that's not the case. They don't move. I mean, they move. Their time moves. So the snare drummer has to imperceptibly follow them, but look like you're leading them. But in reality, you're kind of following them because they're not adjusting to you. They, they're not groove instruments. They're going da 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 and they're not playing it in the pocket. So your best hope is that it all kind of comes together in the acoustics of the hall. Because that's the only thing. When we're playing in a pit, especially nowadays, everything is mic. What you hear in the headphones and the cans is, boom, immediate. It's right there. When you're playing in a hall, there's all these natural reverbs, all this stuff happening. It's like, oh, man, where, what do I follow? What do I hear? I don't even know what I'm hearing. And then you've got a guy in front of you or a gal ahead of the beat. So you're like, okay, I'm going to watch the first violin. When she puts her bow down, that's where the music starts. So a lot of people are actually watching that contact of the, of the violin, <laughs> the first violin. I'm going to watch the first trumpet player taking a breath. I'm going to watch the timpani go like this. I'm going to, you know, so 
And also, you're going to be like, do I have tenure in this orchestra or am I a sub? <laughs> if, you're, if you're a sub of the orchestra, you better be following everybody. Don't be, don't be leading. Don't take the lead, man. <laughs> or if you've got tenure, sometimes you go, no, this is where the B is. And like, okay. But that's also no, not a good way to make music in general. I always say, I think playing music is like, like Star Wars, like in Endor, you know, when they're like following like those motorcycles afloat and everybody's going like this. That's kind of like music. It's going to move, but your job is to move with it a little bit. You know, now if it's going like this, get a metronome. But if it's going like this, it's normal. It's going to move. I mean, music is going to move. It doesn't move when you have a click track so much. But even then, I mean, you get these great drummers that play with click track one way versus another drummer that plays with click, click track the other way. If I'm playing with a drummer and a click track, I'm going to make the click track a little lower than the drummer. Because I want to play with the drummer. Like at Ain't Too Proud, I didn't have the click track so loud because we weren't in the same room. I had you really loud and I had George from the bass really loud because I want to lock in with that. But that's more groove music and less of orchestral stuff. I have never played with the New York City Ballet, but I have played with the Met and, and a little bit with the Philharmonic. Uh, not as much as with, with the Met. You know, only a couple times with the Philharmonic. But with the Met, I played a lot because my teacher at Juilliard is the principal percussionist at the Met. That's the Metropolitan Opera. Yeah, Greg yeah. Zuber. He's a wonderful, wonderful percussionist. And uh, he's been gracious enough to invite me several times over the years to come and play some percussion with them. And it's always a learning experience and always a thrill. How do we, they even keep it together? Forget about the orchestra. What about the singers on stage, which, which got their own idea of what musical time should be? So it, the, the Met, I'd say, is one of the most flexible orchestras in the world. Like, mm. they just adjust to these massive walls of sound. But I tell you, it's not that different than playing Afro-Cuban music. It's not that different than playing any other kind of music. Like whenever I'm playing Afro-Cuban music, like bata drums or whatever, the, the beat is moving, generally moving forward. Because that's the other thing I wanted to talk about. Certain kinds of groove, even within groove music, where supposedly everything is right there with the click, certain things are with the click, but certain things are just a little bit ahead of the click or a little bit behind. Like, for example, whenever I see a drummer going, like, playing even eights on their hi-hat, they always feel a little bit forward. But if they're going like this, it's a different vibe. So, like, all-time R&B drummers, they never went... They went like, and that has a different vibe than when you hear like more modern R&B players going more like a drum machine kind of vibe. So that right there, similar style, but different approach and it requires a different skill from the drummer. So when I'm playing bata drums on a, you know, on a religious ceremony, like Afro-Cuban religious music that time behaves differently than when I'm playing congas on a show like ain't too proud where we have more click where we have where the music we're playing is R&B or, or Motown music or whatever. It's, it's like a different ballgame. Or if I'm playing congas in a salsa band with no click or nothing, but we just like, like a train going forward, you know? So, you know, it's the same thing. You know, the orchestra, they have these kinds of approaches depending on the halls that they are or depending on the kind of music they're singing, doing. And the same thing goes for, for us. You know, we're doing a, even a Broadway show. Like you said, Cats felt one way. A different Broadway show like Motown felt completely different. 
And, you know, if you have to play like one of those, like Hello Dolly or whatever, Oompa Oompa is kind of like two beat stuff. That's a whole different ball game too, you know? So, I mean, my hat off to like people that can play a lot of different kinds of stuff. I get a kick out of that, like being able to adjust my belt to whatever situation I'm in. And because of that, and I always tell younger players, like students, hey, it's really good to have different tools in your toolkit. It's really a good idea. So, yeah, the specialty thing is good, too. But maybe have a couple specialties, not just one. You know what I mean? If you like what you hear on this show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.com. To continue producing the high-quality podcast you're listening to, publishing engaging newsletter content, and posting YouTube videos, we would appreciate any financial contributions you can make. At this time, we have no advertisers, and we'd like to keep it that way. Our staff is small, but growing. We can only produce a show with listener contributions from people like you. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can sign up to be a monthly or annual subscriber at broadwaydrumming101.com. You can also contribute any amount you wish through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash broadwaydrumming101 or through Venmo at broadwaydrumming101. Or help keep us caffeinated by buying us a cup of coffee or a week's worth at buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. We appreciate any support you can give. I mean, take anything I say with a grain of salt because... Everything is based on my own experience and my own journey, which is different from everyone. So it, it may or it may not apply to anyone listening. But I, I'm going to say my, my opinion is that whenever we play a show, a Broadway show, right, the music that is being played at a Broadway show is not the main focus of the show. The main focus of the show is the singing, the acting, and the story. And the music is subservient to that story. Now, the minute I said that, that music, whatever is Neil Diamond or Led Zeppelin, or, you know, Whitney Houston, or Michael Jackson, whatever it is, that music now stops being just music, and it goes into this special category of theater music, and quotation marks appear magically around its title. What do I mean by this quotation marks? You are taking the music outside of its natural habitat, a habitat that was produced for the enjoyment of this music in of itself on the radio or on a record or at a concert hall or in the backyard. If it's like one of these, you know, musicals like, you know, uh, traditional, based on traditional music or whatever. And you're taking it outside of that natural element and trying to put it in this other element to support a story, right? And to sell out eight shows a week to thousands of people that may have never heard what that music was or know anything about it, but they're interested in that story. Not so much in the music necessarily all the time. So, and we've seen that. We've seen a lot of music, musicals that get, that are based on an artist and the artist is huge. And then the musical flops and like, what happened? We thought everybody would come in droves. Well, I'll tell you what happened. This story wasn't fleshed out or it was the wrong casting choice or they, it, it, the way they presented it was outdated. Who knows? I don't know anything about that, but something happened because <laughs> some things land, some things don't. So when we come to younger players that they're only learning shows, they're only learning the music already within its quotation marks. 
they're not learning the music in its natural habitat. So if you want to learn how to play R&B, you shouldn't be playing the Motown show. If you want to play Motown music, you should not be playing Motown music. If you're going to play rock music, you shouldn't be playing Rock of Ages. <laughs> you should be listening to the rock records. You should be doing it. If you want to play hip hop, you don't have to play Hamilton. You should be like listening to hip hop artists, listening to what kind of aesthetics go in there. And then you'll know how to do that. And guess what? If you know how to read a chart and you know how to play music, you can play a Broadway show. There's nothing that is going to prevent you from that. What's going to prevent you most likely from playing a Broadway show is if you know a lot about Broadway, but you don't know a lot about music. Because the people that hire the musicians, they're hiring musicians based on their specialties. And their specialty is not like, oh, he's a great Broadway drummer. Oh, she's a great Broadway percussionist. She, no, she's a great mallet player. She's a great uh, bongo player. He is a great uh, harmonica player, whatever it is. And this show happens to require that skill to tell the story. So my advice is go out there and play music. Play a lot of music. There's a lot of music happening in the world. I, I don't really believe this like, Oh, music is dead. No, music is not dead. There's, it's happening. There's a lot of people doing all kinds of stuff. So you might be, you might want to play a Broadway show, but then you go discover other music and you might become a specialist on that and thrive at that. And then somebody calls you for a Broadway show and you're like, no, I'm on the road with so-and-so. I don't have time for a Broadway show. Or I'm giving lectures on how to play the glass harmonica and I don't have time to do this anymore you know what i mean like it just happens that we are musicians living in this part of the world and broadway is an incredible uh, business that requires musicians to show up but the musicians need to be able to play the music you know occasionally you see musicians that get hired who are doing okay but they might not necessarily know that music really well and you know it's not that they're going to get fired or anything but all the other musicians can hear that, it, you know, maybe that person doesn't sound as good as this other person. I wish I had got this other person because that would have been great. Now we've got this other person here who is okay for this kind of music, but not great for this kind of music. You know what I mean? Like, like if somebody called me for the next uh, musical based on Bollywood and they want me to play some tabla, I'll be like... Uh, I can't do it. That's not what I do. And I've done a lot of Broadway, but that's not, that's a specific thing that I don't do. So you go ahead and get yourself a tablet player and show them how Broadway works, you know, because you can always learn how Broadway works, but it's much harder to learn a kind of music while you're doing Broadway. It can be done, but it's difficult. And while you're doing it, everybody notices it. You know, that's my advice. <laughs> you know, leave it or take it. And I'm probably wrong about it. No, that, but that's the reason why you are uh, Tarzan, Rocky, ain't too proud on your feet once on this island. The Wiz. And yeah. the reason why you played with Sean Kingston, Diana Ross, Gladys Knight, Shaka Khan. You have that musical knowledge that has a lot afforded you the ability to play with these these great shows and these great artists. You also went on after Juilliard to the City University of New York. Indeed, yes. And you are that's you know I talked about it earlier. You are you had you got your doctorate degree. I Do you, did. As I said before we started recording, should I call you Dr. Diaz now? Well, you know, it has a certain ring to it, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think these names of Dr. This and Dr. It's kind of like strange because, I mean, I go to a doctor's office. That's 
And I, when I go to a doctor's office, it's because something is wrong and needs to be fixed. Uh, so nobody would come to me if something is wrong and needs to be fixing. So for, for anyone to call me a doctor, it always seems like, why are they calling people that are just studying something extra that they thought it was a good idea at the time? Why are they giving the title of doctor? But whatever, that's another. Well, here's, here's the thing. If, if the groove is bad and man, we need, we need the doctor to come in. <laughs> <laughs> Javier, are you free? The doctor's on his way. He's coming to, to, to heal coming. us. <laughs> yeah. To heal the groove. <laughs> You know, we are all healers. And let me say this, besides, I I got this doctorate degree because I did, uh, uh, I've done, and I continue to do a fair amount of college teaching. And uh, at one point I was teaching at the University of Connecticut and everybody around me that had a full-time gig had a doctorate and I didn't, and I didn't have a full-time gig. I was like, maybe I should get a doctorate. I mean, it's not going to hurt. I mean, it didn't hurt, but it took a, a long time, like working full time and like going to school with people that were like 10 years younger than I was at the time it was a little weird, but I learned a lot. I mean, I learned a lot about writing about music and I learned a lot about when I read about music, understanding what my sources come from and know, you know, like we musicians, we always have stories. So knowing where those stories come from, that's what a doctor and music is about, in my opinion. But what I did in my dissertation was a musical analysis of Afro-Cuban bata drumming, which is one of my passions. It's, it's this tradition of ritual Afro-Cuban music that I have been lucky enough to learn from masters. And let me tell you, I've been lucky about everything. Like, I, I still don't think that I do any of what I do because... I'm great or I'm the best or, or I practice really hard. No, I, I mean, I did practice and I continue to practice, but it's a matter of sometimes being in the right place at the right time with the right attitude, with the right people, and then things happen. Uh, but uh, we are all healers in a way, Clayton. You know, like that's really, I mean, it sounds a little, uh, I don't know, new agey, but man, I never feel better than when I'm playing. We're healing ourselves, you know. Uh, we're healing the community. We're healing those people that come. I tell you, one of the one of the great thrills of playing a beautiful noise. I, I didn't know Neil Diamond's music so well. I knew the classics, right? This guy wrote a lot of tunes for many people, and he's an incredible songwriter. But when I when I see the audience and they are transfixed, they're like re- reliving their 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 times when they heard this tune the first time, and I'm like looking at the audience and I'm like, it is kind of magical, and it's really a privilege to be able to make this noise that we call music every night for these people, you know. So I, I it's almost like this is not for me. Like I'm playing music for myself and yes, I'm healing myself with, with that moment. But at the same time, it's almost like this is a service to this community of people that have, have nothing to do with us. And yet we, we, we might be helping them get through all kinds of stuff. We don't even know, you know? So even if you're just playing the shaker, just, you know, it might, it might be what they need, you know? So uh, it's, it's an incredible thing. So, yeah, we are doctors and healers, I think, all of us. Now, you've done several different shows. Uh, I'm just going to list them again. Tarzan, The Wiz, Women on the Verge with Nervous Breakdown, Rocky Ain't Too Proud, On Your Feet, Once on This Island, and you're doing A Beautiful Noise right now. Right. If there's one thing um, that you should tell, uh, if somebody wants to get into Broadway and if there's one thing that you should tell them that's the most important thing that they should know about playing drums or percussion for Broadway shows, what would it be? Oh man, that's a great question. You know, I really think the most important thing is and will remain something that is not about playing. The most important thing is to really get along with people. Great. Because 
you're going to be seeing when you're playing a Broadway show, you're going to, you're going to be playing many shows a week, sometimes eight shows a week. And you're going to be, be seeing the same cast of characters for a long time. If it's a successful show. So you want to get along with everybody just fine. You want to, you want to be congenial and you, so that's a given. I can't tell you how many great percussionists or drummers I meet that just their interpersonal skills are just a little bit lacking. They just need a little bit. You work on your single strokes, just make sure, you know, you can get along with everyone and, and be in that. Uh, camaraderie because I mean we're like there we're like in a ship you know the theater is kind of like a ship um, and the other thing is I, I learned this from my wife I wasn't always like this and many times even now I fail at it but my, my wife Torian Spellman who was an oboist uh, is to stay positive no matter what you got to get stay positive. You have no gigs, stay positive. You're practicing and things are not going well, stay positive. Things are going great, stay positive. Because negativity always tries to creep in and ruin the party. No matter how great your show is, no matter how many gigs you got, there's always some sort of like insecurity or some sort of like thing that you would like to get to or situation that you might not have yet. Everything comes to those that work at it. Like there's so, so, but you don't, you cannot let that work just kill your vibe and be like a, a negative person. So for me, having interpersonal skills, having, you know, congenial relationships and staying positive throughout all the stages of your preparation and your success or failures. That's what's going to guarantee the ultimate success, which is to stay in the race. No matter whether you're ahead or in the back or in the middle, you're still in the race. You know, second, like second, like everybody's going crazy about the World Cup. Everybody's watching where the ball is. Nobody's watching the players in the periphery that are just running <laughs> with, without the ball. But they are in the game. You know what I mean? So everybody's watching the Broadway players. Oh, man, they got the gigs. I need to get there. But there's all the players. They might not have the ball, but they are in the game. And at some point, the ball is going to get past to them, and they got to be able to do something. So it's the same thing with us. You know, if you, if of course, you have to be able to do the basics. Get your stick control. Get your syncopation book. And do whatever it is that your teacher told you to do with those things. Listen to the music. You know, play a lot of live music. Play a lot of recorded music. If nothing is happening, make your own opportunities. Start your own band. Go play at your cousin's wedding. Whatever it is, just do it up. Do it well with a smile. Stay positive and develop those relationships. I always say to kids, get along with your, with your, your classmates. Get along with that piano student, with that other cat that is uh, helping you out in oral skills. Get along with them because those are the people that are going to hire you. It's not me. I'm not, I'm not going to hire you. It's going to be your generation that's going to hire you. It's like the, the, the older generation will give you a break, but those people will be gone within a few years. you know. And then it's your people, that cat that you never wanted to have lunch with, that other lady that, you know, that you, oh, she's always out of tune or whatever. You know what I mean? So you have to get along with people starting at school, starting in your community. And from that point on, stay positive and just keep learning, keep it fresh. And I, and I always say, Clayton, I'm always going to be a drummer. Whether I can make a living at it or not, I will always be a drummer. I'll always play. And I'm so thankful I can play Cuban music, Afro-Cuban drums, because I can just, I can just do that. I mean, I get together with players we're not getting paid to get together and, and, and play and just work out rhythms and things. We're just doing it because we love it. And that makes you happy. Yeah. It also makes you better, but it makes you happy. And that's why you do it. You know, so get out of the practice room, get to the gig. If there's no gig, make the gig, 
and make those connections by being genuinely nice and kind. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor has spoken. (laughs) (laughs) Healing words from Dr. Diaz on the the Clayton Craddock uh, Broadway Drumming 101 show. I should talk like this now because he's just giving us medicine to... to, (laughs) to Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Let the healing begin, baby. (laughs) And this is fun. Thank you so much. Thank you once again. Congratulations on your new show. May you guys run for way longer than Ain't Too Proud. (laughs) Oh, man. Fingers crossed. You never know with these things, you know? Yes. Positive. Let's see what happens. (laughs) Exactly. Ten years. I say ten years. Ten year run. There you go. Then you can retire. Nice round number. Yes. <laughs> All right, Dr. Diaz. I know you can't stand for I don't know if you can't stand I say that. No, it's <laughs> hey, you know what? It was hard getting that thing. So if people want to say Dr. Diaz, <laughs> oh, <you know. laughs> man, we gotta get together and hang, period. That's just, you know, we just gotta get together and you know, eat some good food and just you know, let the conversation happen. Thank you so much. And thanks everybody for watching this. I I hope I I could contribute like an ounce of something positive to you. And uh, thank you, Clayton, for this amazing opportunity. This is a great, great show. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Don't forget to subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page you'll find more content that isn't featured on the podcast or on the Broadway Drumming 101 Instagram page. Make sure when you subscribe to the YouTube page, you click on the button to be notified when a new video is published. Be sure to visit our new shop at merchandise.broadwaydrumming101.com. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast.